Good to be together this morning. Hey, I want you to imagine for just a moment that your phone just buzzed and that in your phone is a text message that came in from whoever it would have to come in from. We're playing a thought experiment, so just play along. Uh, And the text message says that Jesus is coming to town. And he is going to meet you at your house tonight, and he's going to follow you around all day tomorrow and just spend the day with you tomorrow with whatever you had planned. And, and given that kind of thought experiment, I want to encourage you for just a moment to think through a couple of questions right out the gate as it relates to Jesus in the person spending tomorrow with you. Uh, The first is, and and I want to take just a moment for this. Uh, First, uh, how do you feel about that? What's your immediate emotional response? You don't have to raise your hand. Um, You know, we we are going to ask you on your way out to fill out some forms. on. No, I'm kidding. Uh, No, uh, very, very seriously, what's your immediate emotional response to that? Maybe it's skepticism. Maybe it's like, well, yeah, it's about time. Maybe your emotional response is a little bit of fear or shame. Maybe your response is pure, elated joy and excitement. I I don't know where that is. But first, I want to encourage you, and we'll come back to it just a little bit later, to, to do some internal business. And maybe you do nothing more over the course of the next 30 minutes, but wrestle through the why to your own answer to the question of Jesus spending the day with you tomorrow. Why do I feel the way I do about the possibility of Jesus spending the whole day with me? I think that the answers to that, the digging into the why, will serve you well in your interior life with God. Because, as I have said so many times, your interior life with God, and sometimes your lack of interior life with God, we all have those moments, is absolutely cascading into every single one of your relationships. The life you have or do not have with God in your interior life is absolutely cascading into every one of your human relationships. Second question to Jesus going to spend the day with you. Uh, what's your day going to be like? I just want you to think about it. Take a minute. So you find out right now in in church on Sunday that tomorrow you're going to spend all day with Jesus. Where does your mind go? What are you you going to do tomorrow? Like you're going to blow the day off of work and go hang out and show him Folsom Prison or, you know, go go have Starbucks? Or are you going to make him endure 14 Zoom calls with you? See, Jesus, this is what I have to do, you know, right? What what are you going to do tomorrow? You're spending the whole day with Jesus. What's your day going to be? First off, how do you feel about it, right? The first question. Why do I feel the way I do about Jesus spending the day with me? And secondly, what would I do if I had all day with Jesus tomorrow? We kick off today six weeks as we do most years during this season called Lent, which is those kind of 40 days minus the Sundays that lead up from Ash Wednesday up to Easter. And for those six weeks, typically as a church, most years, we have gone through a series that we call Walking with Jesus, uh, kind of reacclimating our lives, if you will, to what it is to walk with Jesus. 
I know that many of you, as you have even mentioned to me today and throughout the week, I've received various text messages and emails and contact from you that you're following along with the various revivals going on. We spoke about it last Sunday a little bit, and maybe you've had your finger on the pulse of that a little bit. I was having dinner with a pastor this last week and got to chatting with the table next to us. My pastor friend is a, a very quiet and very kind of to himself sort of person, and I began to share with him as we were reacquainting ourselves to our family rhythms about some of the things that we do at dinners, at family dinners. And one of the traditions in my family when we go out to dinner is we oftentimes will look at the tables next to us and try to figure out their life stories. Do you do this? It's like a people watching of sorts. So, you know, you're, you're sitting next to a table and maybe it's a, a, a couple and they're talking and you start trying to figure out what's going on there. Are they breaking up? Have they been married a long time? And is it their first marriage or their second marriage? Or are they having fun? What, what do you think they'll order? Well, she's definitely a salmon kind of person and he's definitely getting the short rib. We do this whole thing and it's just, it's just silly fun for us, uh, hopefully free of all judgment or ickiness, but just a joy. And I was telling my friend about this, and he goes, okay, well, the lady right behind you, have you heard her? I go, yeah, I've been listening to her the whole time. She's really loud and very boisterous. And he goes, what does she do for a living? I go, oh, I already know what she does. Have you figured it out? And he goes, yeah. And I go, okay, I'll count of three, we'll say it. We went, one, two, three, realtor. And we both thought <laughs> she was a realtor. Turns out we were dead wrong. She's a second grade teacher. But as... <laughs> As the dinner went on, the joy is you begin to fill in the blanks for this person's life. And then he said, but now you have me like gripped. I have to find out. And I said, oh, don't worry, Josh. We're going to find out. And he goes, how do you do it? And I said, well, we're going to become her best friend. And so as the dinner went on, we interrupted her dinner and we hijacked her from the table she was at. And she ended up sitting at our table for the next 20 minutes. And we got to hear her whole life story. She'd been married 36 years. She was a second grade school teacher. She grew up in Kentucky, and I said, oh, in Kentucky, did you go to school there? And she said, yeah, well, where'd you go to college? And she said, this tiny little town you'd never know in Kentucky, this tiny little school called Asbury. And I said, I know Asbury. <laughs> and we spent the next 35 minutes uh, with this stranger we didn't know talking about revival and talking about her life with God, which was not like, I just wanted to know if she was a realtor or not and what kind of SUV she drove. We were sure that she was a big SUV kind of lady, and we were sort of torn between Mercedes or like Escalade Denali, and we just couldn't figure it out. Well, turns out it's a Durango, but it was like the really high-performance, like, you know, super obnoxious motor Durango, so that felt like we were still in the zone. People's stories are fascinating, are they not? It's incredible as we've been following along and paying attention to what's going on in the world around us. These sort of revivals that have sparked uh, first, we think, on Asbury's campus. Now it looks like it's on about 20 different college campuses. We're beginning to pay attention, people, to our distance from the way of God. We're beginning to pay attention. Maybe a little cynicism here and there, and maybe a little judgment there and, and hereafter, but we're paying attention, people, to what God is up to in our world. And in these moments, as to the earlier question of Jesus spending the day with you, when we begin to think about our distance from the way of Jesus, we typically will go one of two ways. We will either 
deal with our own shame of our distance and guilt and, ah, I'm so far off from God. I can't even deal with it. Sometimes we would go another direction of cynicism and judgment. Well, it's probably not real, right? What if we laid those down for a moment? What if we imagined Jesus with us? Mark's the first gospel writer to publish. And his recounting of the stories and the ministry of Jesus were the the first ones that got penned and put in hands. The other gospels were written later. And often we all imagine that those gospels later were written sort of with Mark's gospel on the right side of the desk and their own account on the left side. And that most of the gospel writers were either writing in response to Mark's account or filling in what they felt Mark had left out that shouldn't be, sometimes filling out the story. But in all of that, these gospel stories are designed to give us a picture of what it is to walk with Jesus, what it is to build our life on the love of this guy, Jesus, who was altogether different. And Mark's gospel is not written in a vacuum. We we should just recognize that, that when Mark writes that gospel, and maybe more importantly, when people were living those seasons with Jesus over those years, they knew this is the Jesus that when he was born, was born in a manger. It was common knowledge in the neighborhood. Don't don't think with your global societal minds right now. These were people who lived in a village, and they all knew each other. They knew he was the, the young kid who was born. They knew that his mom and dad, to this day, had doubled down on the story. Christian orthodoxy believes it to be true, but to them, it was just a story that this Jesus was born of a virgin. Seriously, Mary's still telling that story? Like, really? That's how the neighborhood felt that. They knew that this is the Jesus that Caesar wanted dead so badly that a couple days after he was born, Caesar put out an edict to have every firstborn son killed in the area. Everybody knew this. So Jesus arrives in Mark chapter 1, and all of this is in the air. This Jesus is beginning a life in the public eye, and all of this is known. They know that this is the Jesus that at 13 hung out in the temple for a couple extra days and blew everybody away with his brilliance around the scriptures. They know this. And with all that, we pick up Mark's account. Verse 1. This is the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. It began just as the prophet Isaiah had written. Look, I'm sending a messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare your way. He is a voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord's coming, exclamation point. Clear the road for him, exclamation point. This messenger was John the Baptist. He was in the wilderness and he preached that people should be baptized to show they had repented of their sins. This will be at least curious in a minute, if not really, really important. 
And when they confessed their sins, he baptized them into the Jordan River. Verse 6, his clothes, still talking about John the Baptist, his clothes were woven from coarse camel hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist. For food, he ate locusts and wild honey. Basically, at Burning Man is sort of what they're trying to explain for us. So, uh, for those wondering, uh, John announced, and for those who don't know Burning Man, Grateful Dead concert. Okay, we just you know, good? No, okay, all right. John announced someone's coming soon who's greater than I am, so much greater that I'm not even worthy to stoop down like a slave and untie the straps of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Verse 9, one day Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee, and John baptized him in the Jordan River. As John or Jesus came out of the water, he saw the heavens splitting apart and the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, you are my dearly loved son, and you bring me great joy. Can I just time out right there? When God looks at you, he says, you are my dearly loved daughter or son. And he has so much joy in you. So if the answer to your first question of you're going to find out Jesus spending the day with you and any negative emotions that came up for you, those are not from God. Jesus coming to spend a day with you, he's not ticked. He's not ready to point out all the stuff you suck at. And you do suck at a lot of stuff. Your spouse is right. It, it, it is the reality. So it's not this sort of, we kind of think of this as this kind of double-edged sword. We go, well, you know, Jesus, maybe Jesus loves me, but he doesn't see everything then. No, he sees everything. He knows. And he dearly loves you. Finds great joy in being with you. Uh, verse 12, then the Spirit compelled Jesus to go in the wilderness. And he was there, tempted by Satan for 40 days. These opening verses give us a glimpse, obviously, into this account, this Jesus and what he was leaning into. When his ministry time came, when it, when it became time for him to begin his, his public life at a young man, give or take the age of 30, which would have been about the age of a rabbi when a rabbi would begin their public ministry, Jesus could have gone a number of different directions. He could have certainly gone down to Jerusalem and entered the synagogue and become a teacher and a rabbi in the synagogue. This would have been the place of power. This would have been the central spot for religious leaders to go. And he had already proven how brilliant he was with the scriptures. So it would have made perfect sense if when Jesus came of age as a rabbi for him to say, okay, mom, dad, village, it's time for me to go and to lean into my inheritance. I am the son of God and I'm here to inhabit and to live out my life here and to teach people what it actually is to love and follow God. And so to Jerusalem, he might have gone. Maybe he would have gathered a group of disciples to follow him and for him to train in the way of being a rabbi, which is certainly more similar to what he did. He certainly wouldn't have gathered the ones he did, right? 
See, either of these options would have made perfect sense, but Jesus does as close to the opposite of that as you could possibly do. And it should not be lost on us as we re- return ourselves back to this idea of walking with Jesus beginning our Lenten series. First, he doesn't pick a strong religious leader. He doesn't pick a popular voice, and he doesn't pick some standout young Talmudin to raise in the rabbinic studies. He picks a weirdo named John the Baptist who's been living out in the wilderness who, if we were to dig a little bit deeper in some of the historians of that day, there's this guy, Josephus, who writes really brilliantly of the history of that day. We, we dig in and we find that nobody even knew where John came from. He just kind of appeared, which is like a whole other thing, Elijah. Uh, dig into that and that'll... You think the virgin birth is a wonky one. Try the Elijah to John the Baptist thing. He picks John the Baptist completely outside the religious inner circle, completely outside voices that were necessarily being listened to by the religious epicenter. And he selects this guy who's known for leading repentance revivals. I mean, in, in, our, in our modern thinking, this is what John did. He, he was moving around and inviting people to repent and be baptized, this baptism of repentance, which was a very common thing in that day for Gentiles who were entering the Jewish faith. If they had decided to convert from sort of their Gentile pagan ways and they wanted to become a Jew, kind of the last step in that, or at least one of the very last steps in that, would be to repent all of their Gentile customs and be baptized. It was a, a denial of their old way and a leaning into the new Jewish way. Baptism has a little different meaning for us these days, but it's still rooted in that same idea that I'm, I'm washed away my old life and I come to new life, but Jesus hasn't sinned. Why in the world is he connecting himself with the repentance of sin? Why is he leaning into this life? He goes to John, this guy that's known for this. Secondly, obviously, he not only goes to John, who's known for leading repentance movements, and has him baptize him, but he does so publicly and with great joy. Not an act of desperation for Jesus, nor some sort of strategy to be the every man. Jesus enters into it. It's Jesus' opportunity to use his authority and the confidence in who he is in God to say, I'm entering into your human experience fully. I'm entering in fully. He's not going to sin, but he's going to enter into the humbling experience of being washed out of a life and into a new life. Verses 9 tell this story so interestingly. Look back at them one more time. One day, Jesus came from Nazareth, and John baptized him in the Jordan River. And as Jesus came up out of the water, he saw the heavens split and the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, You are my dearly loved son, and 
you bring me great joy. There's certainly a timing thing here to explore of how Jesus got touched by the Holy Spirit in his humanness when he entered fully into his humanness as much as he possibly could, still being fully God, the Holy Spirit touches him. It's an act that we look at with some cultural distance, and we would be wise to recognize that distance. And maybe we can't fully understand the weight of all of its impact, but friends, don't zone out. You feel this in your bones. I know it. <laughs> you, you watch a, a little video on social media somewhere. It's, it's the same sort of genre or narrative of video that's been told a thousand different ways. The, the one that comes to my mind is the, the track and field star competing at the Olympics, and they're running this race. You've seen some version of this video, I'm sure. The one track star falls down and trips at the Olympics. Most embarrassing, most humbling, most soul-crushing experience of that young athlete's life ever, probably. In front of the whole world to see. Parents, countrymen and women. And yet you've seen the video where another racer who's winning the race, or at least doing really well in the race, stops and comes back for them. And picks them up, right? And then walks them to the finish or helps them hobble to the finish. And if you're anything like me, I'm such a crybaby these days. I never used to be, but bloody kids get older and you turn into a whimpering idiot. These videos make me cry every time. I just want to somebody love that kid. You know. I don't know what it is for you. Maybe it's like the cat video or the lady who drives around looking for stray dogs and spending all day bringing in a stray. But you get the, the genre of this video. And if it doesn't move you, you even feel a sense of, something's icky in me today. That should move me. Not that it should always make me cry, but that should, that should move me. That should do something to me. And as we reacclimate our lives around walking with Jesus, let us begin this journey with this concept in our mind that the way of Jesus looks like humble presence. The way of Jesus looks like being present to another in humility, entering into their world humbly and just being present with them. No judgment, no need to fix it, but present with it, humbly. And it's profound and it's powerful, but let me be clear, this very feature of the Christian life separates us, separates Christian orthodoxy from every other religion. I might even put American evangelicalism in that. This central feature that our Messiah comes from heaven to earth and humbly presents himself to the world and says, I'm here with you. Every other religion, the messianic character comes, sometimes on a white horse with a lightning bolt in their hand, right? And cleans house, gets power, gets temples built. And Jesus comes and he's with the poorest. He's with the lowly. 
And again, not to beat the horse dead, but to be very clear, it's to be with those that your resources, that your success, that your head start in life, that your wisdom, that your gifts, that all that you have earned is all leveraged to be present with the lowly. This is walking with Jesus. Your high level of education in the Jesus economy has not been achieved so you can rub shoulders purely with those who share your high level of education. Your high level of education was a gift to you so that you can understand those who need your help the most. Your resources, your retirement account, your bank account, all of that is you have worked very hard for. I'm not here to say you did not. But it is not there simply or purely for you to provide for your needs, wants, and desires. It is there to be a kingdom asset. This is central to Christian orthodoxy, that what we have been given is given for that. This is why to the rich man, Jesus says, sell everything, give it to the poor, and come follow me. Because for those who are rich among us, following Jesus will never feel fulfilling until it is more important than the most important thing in our life. And to the religious power brokers, Jesus says, pray in secret. Stop telling your stories on stage, dude, right? This, this is what Jesus says to the power brokers. Do your religious activity, your heart connection with me, do it in secret so it, it never get a pedestal. And to the woman living in sin who Jesus hangs out with at the well in John 4, he says to her, don't tell anyone about this. Now we know she went immediately and told everyone about it and turned her city upside down. And we kind of use that as a reason to go, oh, see? So why does Jesus tell her not to? He tells her not to because he doesn't want her to use her encounter with Jesus to gain social status. You are lowly right now, woman at the well. That's where you should stay. Not because you're not worthy, but because you now walk in the authority and the confidence that you are mine and that I've got you and you don't need social status. You don't need, you don't need to tell everybody in town that, hey, listen, you all said I was garbage, but Jesus says I'm awesome. You just walk in that. Your authority, your wealth, your brilliance, your availability, your expertise. When walking with Jesus, all of this is an alabaster jar broken at the feet of Jesus. And church, this is who you have been for a really long time. So this is a really fun message for God to say we should hear. Because I got to serve alongside almost all of you at some span of time over the last 13, 14 years. And watched you do exactly that. I watched some of you give away the vast majority of your resources to push the kingdom forward. I've watched some of you give hours and hours of time you didn't have because you were raising little kids for the kingdom. I've watched you serve at homeless shelters. I've watched you build walls you didn't know how to build in this building. I've 
watched you care for the least. I've watched you sit for hours with people you didn't want to sit with. Church, you've done this well. And it feels really good. But there's a second piece that I feel like um, is really important for us as a church who do humble presence fairly well, guys. You do it well. If you didn't do humble presence well, you wouldn't come to disciples. You'd go somewhere else where humble presence wasn't necessarily central. But let me say this last thing in these closing minutes together. Uh, Somewhat as a reminder to us, but also as a push to, to go further, friends. We all could be served well by going further. Humble presence is the fragrance from inner work. And faking it usually stinks. Humble presence, being humbly present with another, will always be the fragrance of interior work you've already done. The the difficulty here for all of us, and and me, chief among sinners, is that we've, we've walked with Jesus long enough, or we've been in the religious subculture long enough, we kind of know what looks humble. We, we kind of know what will appear humble. And so we know how to kind of switch that gear in place and do the thing you're supposed to do. But the difficulty with it is when we're faking it, everybody knows it. And, and this might even be more dangerous. Uh, you know, I mean, for those of you who don't want to be exposed, that, that's scary enough. But here, here's the other thing about it, is when we fake humility, we always experience the other as having an ulterior motive, and they now become even more an enemy or an obstacle to us than they were before. Uh, hang with me for just a minute. This is, I think, key, but may feel even a bit abstract at this moment. You see, in the moments where you and I present ourselves as something humble when we're actually not humble, when we're just doing it because it's like probably the right thing to do, we're looking at those who we believe to be beneath us and we're serving them or we're engaging a conversation. But have you ever had a conversation with somebody that you knew thought you were beneath them? You know, you can just kind of feel it. You can just feel it in the air. You think I'm less than you. Uh, Now, often, you know, those conversations will arrive. And especially if you've been in this religious subculture any period of time. Again, you know the moment that shifts. You know the moment you go, oh, I should be humble here. Uh, you're, You're being asked about a response you had or you're being asked to sacrifice something you don't really want to sacrifice. but demonstrating humility when it's not actually in there. When you don't actually want to be present with somebody. You ever been in a conversation and hearing a conversation at the table next to you and realizing I'm more engaged in that conversation than I am the one right here? That just happened to me the other day. My buddy Josh goes, wait, are you paying attention to the thing behind you? Yeah, sorry, I totally am. I'm listening to everything over there. Are you too? He goes, yeah. I go, okay, awesome. Let me tell you about my family game, right? I mean, I kind of got bailed out. See, uh, let me land this uh, simply if you're feeling that tension. You see, humility and the desire to be humbly present 
is only something that develops in our interior world. By being with Jesus, by being with God, at such a depth of intimacy, that when we step into an occasion where somebody else is trying to humble us, that it, it has no effect on what we believe to be true. Because here's the reality. I'm going to use stats like most pastors use stats, which means I'm going to make them up, um, okay? So, um, but play along for a minute. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to guess that 80% of the time in your life, and I, I don't think I'm wildly off here. I'm going to guess 80% of the time in your life when somebody else, it feels like they're trying to humble you and you feel like there's an ulterior motive, there is. There actually is an ulterior motive. They actually are trying to humble you, to get power over you or to get something from you or to make you look bad. Well, then why would I let them do that, Stu? Because you know who you are. Because you've just been with Jesus so much. Jesus steps down into those waters and he knows that the religious institution are going to use his baptism as a way to say, see, you don't get it. You don't know what you think you know. Only Gentiles get baptized, Jesus, you dummy. You, you don't understand the scriptures like you thought. <gasps> Maybe you are a sinner, and that's why. Jesus steps into all of that willingly, knowing it will get twisted, and it doesn't matter to him because that's a humble thing to do because he knows who God sees him. He knows that when I come out of water, I'm going to hear, this is my beloved son in whom I have great joy. And that is all that matters. And so in the moments when somebody's trying to humble you, they're trashing your name, they're trashing your organization, they're trashing your family, they're trashing your work ethic, whatever it is they're coming at. I can't let them do this. There's an ulterior motive. Well, you can let them do this. And there probably is an ulterior motive. It's okay because you know who you are in Christ. And that only comes from a deep well of who you actually are. You can't fake it. You just can't. If you're humbly present and you hear that Jesus is coming to town tomorrow and he's going to follow you around all day, let me tell you some responses that will be natural if you're humbly present. One, you will not be nervous about that day with Jesus a bit. You'll just be excited. Why? Because you know that God is pleased with you and finds great joy in you. And secondly, I suspect if you're humbly present, your day tomorrow is going to now be about introducing Jesus to everybody in your life who you love, who you know needs to be with Jesus. I imagine that if Jesus spends tomorrow with me and most of my Mondays are spent on Zoom, doing 10 to 12 Zoom calls, and I just was envisioning Jesus. I'm pulling up a second office chair in my little office, and I'm sitting Jesus right next to me, so he's in camera view of the Zoom call. And we're going to go on the Zoom call, and everybody's going to be like, hey, who's that? Hey, it's Jesus, guys. And, I, and I'm just trying to imagine if I was humbly present, how I'd respond. And I think, I think, I'm not sure, I think if I was humbly present, every Zoom call I would get on, I'd be like, hey, wait, now, Jesus, this is Bob. you got to hear Bob's story. Bob, tell him about what happened to you when you were nine years old. And Bob's going to tell him. You, you get the vibe? Like, there's just going to be this joyful, and she's going to, yeah, like, I kind of know. Like, I was stew. 
I was there. No, no, but you got to hear Bob's story. And then Jesus is going to minister to Bob. And if I'm humbly present, I'm just going to be so excited to have had a front row seat to what Jesus was doing. It just changes everything, guys. It changes the whole day. It changes the whole dynamic. Well, guess what, friends? Jesus is going to spend all day with you tomorrow. And I know that feels like really second grade Sunday school. And I, it, you're like, geez, really? I sat through 36 minutes for that. I knew that's what was coming. Yeah, so you know it in a rom-com too, and you still watch them, and they're awesome. <laughs> like Jesus is going to be... <laughs> wow, or right now. <laughs> Let me remind you, um, you are the only Bible any of your coworkers are going to read tomorrow. You're it. You are the only Jesus any of your neighbors on your street have probably ever met. Go and become increasingly the kind of person who is humbly present in the normal day-to-day like Jesus would be if he was living your life for you. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may his face shine upon you. Father, Son, and Spirit, hear the uh, prayers of your people in this moment quietly. Find great delight as we trust that you do in being with your kids. Move us, Spirit, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.